0: Oh Ma Jana Dmirandasya Jan Jana Salakaya Chaksurun Milidamy Tasma Si Guru Venama Sri Harinam Prabhuki Yaya Vaishnava Guru Parampraki. So thank you all for coming again and so this Kiritan is uh very efficacious spiritual practice for the times in which we live of course when we speak of times in which we live i'm, I'm referring to the hindu kind of calendar that qualifies time in terms of the like moral or karmic uh, component of the time, the quality of the time. This is said to be not the best quality of time. <laughs> so they call it the Yuga. Yuga means like a millennium or some a long period of time. Time was of course cyclical and thought to be cyclical in many ancient cultures and then it turned linear with Christianity and some support from science, but that's changing now, too. A secular time is being reconsidered in physics, right? <laughs> by some wise people. So, it's called the Yuga of Kali. Kali means in a sense, a quarrel. So, a time of hypocrisy and lack of integrity. And it's been going on for a while, as you can tell. <laughs> and it's also characterized, according to the sacred text, by something called Yantravigyan, Yantra means machine, literally, and Big Yang means like science, or so science of machines. Some people say it means technology and the abuse of such, which, you know, it kind of lends itself to. It doesn't have to be, but it, it's easily abused. So, now the best of times, but correspondingly the best of spiritual practices, best in two ways, I guess. Best in terms of its... Efficacy and its its reach, the height of its reach, and best in terms of the generosity of its outreach. So, here we are chanting, and the neighbors are hearing. So very generous idea, and the height of its reach then has that idea, kind of a dharma of the nam. Nam means name, so, and huti means. Hadi means the name for Krishna. Hadi means who takes away who's a thief, kind of who steals. So he steals away our our heart. There is a story I've told before about two policemen in in India and they were one said to the other, you know, it's a real pity that our God is a thief. Mm-hmm. Krishna is used to steal butter and things in neighbors' houses and He thought it would taste better, you know, if there was a little mystery, mischief to it. Uh, And He's probably right about that. But the other fellow said, well, that's the whole problem. Our God is a thief and we're trying to teach people, you know, not to steal and so forth. He said, no, you don't understand. Krishna is non-different from his name and his name does not care for high walls or locked doors, which was what we have erected around our hearts. He goes in anyway and steals away. Then by opening shop there he effectively closes all the other market the marketplace of desire that we've opened because what he offers is, is much better than anything we could desire and come up with in our our own minds and makes it very readily available in this way by stealing his way into our hearts even if we don't want him there so it's the generosity then again of the name and of the practice, of kirtan. Kirtan comes from a root, verbal Sanskrit root kirti, which means fame. So it involves positing, if you will, the virtues of another who is virtuous. It is meant for the virtuous. And it is such that by that, we ourselves also become virtuous. And so, if you look carefully, you see that Krishna among the in the Hindu pantheon, and if we look cross-culturally, I think religiously also, he's most worthy of being the focus of this type of practice. If you study the person of Krishna, as he's depicted in the text, and so you can understand what I mean. And beyond that, of course, we find that he's the only god, if you will, among many gods, goddesses presiding over this, that, and the other thing in, in everything. In Hinduism there's a God and a goddess for everything, which is kind of a nice idea. It means there's somebody on the other end of everything that we're using to make our lives work. I've given an example before, like in your house, you know, you turn a switch and you get light and you turn a valve and you get water and you press a button and you get heat and you go to the mailbox and you get a bill. <laughs> there's somebody on on the other end, and you you have to make acknowledge them and so forth with gratitude <laughs> and sacrifice from your paycheck, and and so there is a relationship that we have as materially speaking, in terms of our humanity, which is constituted of our senses by which we carry out our life. We see forms, we hear sounds, we smell aromas and taste tastes and so forth and touch things and so such as our life and we move with our with our motor senses in our legs and our arms and our faculty for generating others and so forth uh, this is kinda of our life what it constitutes this movement of our senses in relation to the objects of the senses and the idea is that there's a relationship that our senses have we're kind of a microcosm of the whole macrocosm so there's a relationship that we have in terms of all of our sensual um all of our senses with the macrocosm just for example like we have eyes with which to see but without sun then it wouldn't be difficult so there's some gratitude for the sun for which we understand it, and, and for hearing and so and and the, and we think that this does our body requires consciousness to, to be meaningful. So the entirety of matter requires consciousness to be meaningful because if, if it existed independently of consciousness, then, as I've said before, who would know about it? Who would care? So consciousness is the knower, the feeler, the experiencer, and so forth. So behind then the Hindu rishis and sages and yogins and so forth, they would posit, this so I'm just kind of giving the reasoning for it, consciousness in, a, in, in person behind the sun, behind the moon, and movements of the different elements and so forth, all of which we're dependent upon in order to move, the message of which is, in one sense, it's not my body to do whatever I want with them, and a part of the system you know we want in america we want independence freedom you know the more freedom we have the more choice we have we think the the better our lives will be but that's questionable more choices more more problems often troublesome too many choices and nonetheless the sense that we should be free that has some currency in the yogic world that there's some to that but independence within the understanding of our interdependence that is desirable now it's very much the it has gone the opposite direction independence for humanity has caused a, a gap between ourselves and nature and we feel estranged do we fit even at all you know in the whole thing so so in the Hindu and in the yogic world and there's this living with a sense of my interdependence uh, that I'm a dependent entity and in the context of that I can find independence from the constraints even of my humanity that's what yoga is about by connecting, if you will myself that is now constrained within my humanity my Atma. That my consciousness me with the conscious kind of source behind the whole show of material nature making a relationship directly and that's a that's a different kind of relationship I have a relationship with the Sun with the moon with the air and so forth whereby I acknowledge and they provide some oxygen some light this is the idea the more you acknowledge the more that nature will reciprocate in a in a meaningful way and there will be a harmony and so forth that's what we're at the loss of today harmony with nature and, uh, and so forth but here in, in yoga then and in Bhakti in particular we're talking about not merely acknowledging the dependence that we have within nature in order to conduct ourselves as a human but beyond that with the, the consciousness if we will that's behind the whole of nature and that connection is a different kind of connection it's not like paying your bill every month and okay you know, propitiate the god I have son I have life it sounds kind of superstitious but it's, it's actually the idea of living with sacrifice and with gratitude and so forth and, and if personifying an element helps to do that then all, you know, all, all the better and there may be a person there <laughs> why not Right? We are a personification of something, something we might want to change, and we might be a different person as a result of it, and that might be good. But this relationship that bhakti is about is forged by understanding the principle of giving and how we grow by that on a basic level, as I'm saying, how we can live in harmony with nature and bountifully by living gratefully in relation to nature. You can experience that. The whole world is undergoing a re-evaluation of our relationship with what we call in yogic terminology, the Shakti. Nature is a Shakti. What is our relationship with that? It's a huge time in one sense of reevaluation. So as we grow, so to speak, in a sense of living with gratitude and we learn that giving is the cause of growth we kind of get it that the secret of life is giving we're predisposed to another type of going by taking if you will because the body imposes needs upon us perceived needs and so we have to go and get them but the more we become giving the more we come out from underneath that the limitations if you will of our our humanity And in the context of giving, we realize the potential of our humanity, in a sense. It's an opportunity to go beyond itself, as humanity is the more developed position for consciousness to be situated in than in less complex forms of life, where we can have these discussions and so forth. So the full use of humanity is to use it to rise beyond itself and know the self entirely, which isn't human, or animal, or male, or female, or black, or white, and so to forge that kind of relationship with our source, so to speak, then it involves a kind of a growing in this sense of giving, where the giving ceases to be a giving of gratitude, whereby I understand if I give, I get something, I live better, and it becomes a giving for giving's sake only, without attaching anything to that. That's the only way we can really forge a direct relationship with Krishna. Because in the Hindu pantheon, for example, he personifies love. You know, Shiva's a meditator and Brahman's got four heads, he's pretty busy, he's a creator, guy, you know, managing, you know. Shiva's giving up the management, forget it, It's, it's, it's impossible. And Krishna's just dancing, playing a flute, he's doing nothing really. He's only playing. Of course, it takes some power, as I've said before, to be able to play. You have to have some money in the bank to take a vacation, some power to take time off and so forth. So the God who's only playing is all-powerful. He's only playing and He's only attracted by love and giving. You might petition Brahma, Shiva, Ganesh for different things and get their attention, but Krishna won't be attracted (laughs) only by loving. This is the idea. Only by giving, completely. He's surrounded, Lakshmi, sahasra, surrounded by givers only. So, given that way in which the mystics have experienced Krishna and described him, we can understand that the yoga of connecting with him is a yoga of love, where this giving is really honed and... Love and song, they kind of go together, don't they? Most of the songs are about love, pretty much, most of them. Or what isn't love? You know, Bob Dylan or something. you know. What isn't love? You know, I'm an old-timer, but or what is love? It's all about love. Song and love, they go, she loves me, she loves me not. They go together very much. We don't find, with all the respect that the Bhakti tradition gives to Shiva. We don't find him asking for kirtan. Do kirtan about me, and I'll be happy. Sing my name, and everything about me. He will. Everything that I have will be yours. I will be yours. We don't find Durga saying that, or Ganesh. Krishna says that. Satatam kirtayanto mam. He says my devotees are characterized by this. They sing about me. That's all they do. It's easy, as you can see. It's very easy. So it's very generous in its outreach and it's very high in its reach as well because we are talking about connecting with the romantic heart, if you will, of the Absolute and the means, it involves no bargaining there's no bargaining, you have to give yourself entirely, you have to give your heart, it doesn't ask anything, just your heart (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's everything. It's, he's a little tricky, but but we are giving our heart anyway, all the time, somewhere. So if we can find a more worthy object, person to repose our heart in, then it's not hard to give your heart. We do it all the time. So again, it's easy, and the reach is high at the same time. And Kirtan Shravanam kirtanam Vishnu Smarnam. This is. When bhakti has been described in the sacred text, kirtan is described as the principal way in which bhakti is expressed. We don't find that. There are other schools of thought noble as they are for in pursuit of enlightened life. But kirtan is particularly part of bhakti. It's the main limb of the body of bhakti, the principal way in which bhakti expresses itself. And particularly, there are different avatars of Krishna like Ram and Nadasingha and so forth. Particularly if you study their character and so forth, you see that the kirtan applies more readily to Krishna. We have Nam-kirtan, kirtan kirtan of his name, kirtan of his qualities, kirtan of his leelas, kirtan describing the different appearances. And so it's very... Kirtan becomes very comprehensive in relation to to Krishna. Like Astanga Yoga, you know, so you've studied Yoga Sutras. It has its limbs. It has its principal practices: Yaman, yama, niyama, asana, Pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. It doesn't say kirtan in there, right? So and that's not a bad thing necessarily, but. That's a particular approach to the Absolute and it has its principal practices. Bhakti's principal practice, that is kirtan. And it's so nice that as people become acquainted with it in different disciplines, they incorporate it into yoga. And if they like Shiva, they start to do Shiva kirtan even, and Durga kirtan, and Ganesh kirtan. So, even though they haven't asked for it. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It speaks, again, of the efficacy of kirtan, its success, how user-friendly it is, how it's, it's a natural thing. I mean, as again, when you love someone, you know, then you the songs all, you know, you think of them all in relation to her or him, or you sing about them in the shower, you make up your own songs, and, you know, mm-hmm. this is kind of what we do <laughs> right here. This is our yoga. So it's, it's very friendly to human society. And it's said that in this particular age, it's very, it's particularly powerful, age of hypocrisy and quarrel, especially when it's done in a group, to take that to a a secular context. We find that when people go to the streets with placards and, well, they're having these tea parties, but, (laughs) and signs and they chant, down with Obama, (laughs) no health care, or whatever it is then it gets in the news, it, it causes change, it causes a disturbance, people have to respond, and when people take to the streets with clangers and drums in this age, the whole of the Soviet Union was dismantled in this way. People just went to the streets and they sang, you know, whatever, peristoika, whatever it was, or down with, you know, you know that kind of thing. So the whole thing just folded. It's very, you know, March on Washington kind of thing. This is a secular form of kirtan, and we see it has tremendous power, efficacy to bring about change. And sound itself, of course, is something that's very powerful. We've exploited in modern science and technology the elements of like earth and fire and water and like fire from we have computers and ethernet and so forth is a huge thing. Sound is another such element that hasn't been yet exploited to the same extent. but it, in the Hindu idea of what nature is constituted of and so forth, sound has even greater power and potential. And you know our mind is in a very simple simple sense is involved in accepting something and rejecting something, evaluating something and rejecting it. and that, both its ability to assemble something, thoughts constructively and dismantle them, construct them, is very much dependent upon the sounds that we take in. That's why we have ears on both sides of the mind. (laughs) So, So sound is very important in many respects, a very powerful influence, and even in physics now, some people like to think that the world is my string theory is kind of an idea that sound is the basis of the world. It's all vibration. And so people sometimes put that together. A friend of mine who's a godbrother of mine was initiated by the same guru. His brother's a famous physicist and he's written a few books about string theory and and then he's made some correlation with what his brother told him, I think his his older brother about people, Rishis of India, the yogis and how they thought of the world. And so forth we do think of it as sound it all comes from sound the story of brahma the creator he's informed with regard to his then derived capacity for organizing the elements through sound through mantra actually through the flute of krishna i think it was the fifth note and then he created by sound and generated the veda which then eventually was written down it's all sound Kind of, along with the creation, that we might, by sound, find our way out. Also, the sutras of Vedanta today and Anabriti Subdat. It means going there, which involves leaving here. One never returns. And by, by sound, it said we go by sound. The sound says so, because the sound says so. It means. <laughs> Because there's the implication of the Aum, and, and it also means, it has been rendered, of all the sounds, the jungle of sounds that the Veda consists of, one sound is most efficacious, made of two syllables Krishna. That's what it says. The Upanishads are said to be like jewels, sound jewels, that give light, and they shine in many respects but ultimately from their own perspective to shed light on one sound that is so efficacious that by by chanting the whole of material existence can be unraveled if it is expanded by the sound directive it's all poetic to an extent of course but of Krishna's flute into the four, eight, sixteen ears of Brahma's four heads? No, eight ears. Two, four, six. Anyway, a lot of ears he had. And the sound went in. And went into his heart. Then from him the sound of the world came about. And so there's a sound by which, coming from the same flute, it could come out of the whole affair. So in the yoga world a lot of emphasis on sound. In fact, sound is described in a very complex way in the Bhagavad on four levels, only one of which is what we know to be sound. There's the sound of the within the pran and then uh, relative to the heart and to the intellect, all kind of sounds you don't hear yet. And activating all of in the full, coming to the full sense of sound, then you can understand why someone could say, just hear this and you'll know everything. We want to think about it, how it's possible. That's impedes us from hearing it, really. People weren't always as pressed by their intellect. Have to sort everything out, dissect it as we are in our society today. But by sound, that can change. Also, we can get a tendency by this kirtana samskar that will predispose us towards such practices like water, you know, withers away the stone. Now we have certain tendencies, samskar disposition that by default. Over lifetimes, it takes us in a particular direction. This bhakti is meant to give us a bhakti samskara and take us in a different direction. And now it's sometimes it's a struggle, but in time, it'll be easy. It'll become your default. Next life, it will be your default position. That's not too long away, you know. <laughs> We've got time. You know, so we should think to be connected with such potential if we can understand it. If I have to wait a little bit for the full effect, yeah, that's not much to ask. <coughs> of course, we live in a we-want-it-now you know now kind of <laughs> culture. We have to change that sanskar, that tendency. So kirtan, very efficacious. The sound is very efficacious. And then the idea that the name of God amongst sounds is sacred. This is not a sectarian idea either. I'm saying that the idea that sound has great... Power and potential for changing our lives. This isn't a sectarian religious idea. This is a, as I'm talking about it, the best I can at the moment, an idea that's universally accepted if we think about it. And then the idea that there could be secular and profane sounds, only someone that doesn't accept the sacred would deny that. And they have their own sacred anyway. Everybody has their own sacred cow if you will, and so sacred and profane sounds and then from the religious point of view, in a non-sectarian religious or spiritual point of view, the idea that the name of God has inherent power, this is accepted in all practically religious traditions, even in Buddhism they have the what do they call this I think Amitabha, Buddha and and there's a whole thing, you just chant that Buddha's name and that's all you have to do that particular Buddha, you go to the Buddha land. And then from there, it's easy to go to Nirvana. There's a whole sect like this. So within Buddhas, within the Judaic or the Jewish tradition, they have an idea that God's name is so sacred, nobody can say it. It's like, you shouldn't utter it. It's like you contaminated or something like that by bringing it down to verbalization and... In Christianity, there's, you know, in the beginning there was the word. So, same idea, you know, the word was one. The name of God is considered to be powerful. So, this is a non-also sectarian idea in the religious context. It crosses over culturally to different traditions. So, and in India we find in the time that the particular tradition that I'm coming in was really forming itself, there was a kind of a revolt by the masses as to what was the put forward most consistently as to the means by which we could commune with with the absolute and perfect our lives it was thought that you had to go through certain procedures and and only certain people born in certain families and unless you were born in the future in one of those you couldn't have access and there was a kind of a revolt to this there's a sense that somehow these texts are being misrepresented here we feel closer to god than you're allowing us to feel that we are that access is he's more generous than you make him out something like that so we find kabir for example and guru nanak in the sikh tradition tukaram also these are all big saints they all responded to this, and they responded with kirtan, with, effic- with the advocacy of Nam-kirtan. There's no one thing that Kabir advocated more than chanting the name of Ram, Guru of that Guru Nanak is filled with the names of Ram and Krishna. We were sat nam sat sat They were all responding to this. And Chaitanya was one who also was in those times. So I'm talking about like uh, maybe 15th, 16th century in India. There was a bhakti kind of revival so these things, you know, will come and go in waves of popularity. Like something's popular now, and you think it's right, and later on it will be, you know, not popular. And so, also with spiritual practices, some will be more in vogue at different times, or they'll be thought to be, and and so on. So there was a Bhakti revival; it's not something new. And they were going to the core text to bring out and say, "Hey, this is what it's about." And so Chaitanya was also in the mix of this, but he really, perhaps more than others. Developed a theology of chanting. This was whole be all and end all, and all about the name of Krishna, principally. And so, from here, we go to the generosity of the name to its reach, its its highest reach. It's very generous, it means it goes very far down, touches the lowest, anybody and everybody, and takes us to the heights. So he developed the whole theology of the name. What is the significance of that? What is the power inherent in the name? And at first, well, they came to the idea that the idea that the name was not simply in syllables that were empowered, they call Avesh, by the Shakti of Bhagwan. And therefore, by invoking them, you would derive that spiritual power also. But from the idea was developed with scriptural support and so forth that the name was actually non-different. It's a hard concept to grasp than Krishna himself. The name and... Na, nam, namino, vinatam, nam, nam nam, nam, obeyed. The name and the named were non-different. And so the idea was that by chanting the name, purely vibrating the name, you'd have the direct experience of the person. And this isn't too much of a stretch for us to think about because really... In many respects, we are our names. That's why if, you know, somebody came by and, and, you know, your daughter said, oh, somebody came to see, well, did you get their name? Who was it? You know, if you have their name, then you can trace them out, right? So, did you get his name? No, oh, everything's lost. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Or today they have the, you know, your name is your social security number, right, from the government's point of view. And if someone gets it, then they've got your whole bank account, everything. They call it identity theft. And all they get is some numbers that some someone have, have corresponded like a name. The government named you 36021. <laughs> 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 got to watch out for them. It's, so if they get your name, then they've got your whole identity. They can drain your bank account, everything. So the idea that the name and the person correspond and more so are one we have some something in the realm of our own experience to draw from to give that theological point some support and of course the more the sound corresponds with that which it seeks to describe the closer the two become and if you study the significance of these two syllables Krishna then this picture starts to come Of personified love, ecstasy—you know—the absolute is Sat Chit Ananda, right? Eternal, cognizant, and blissful. And so the—and the Krishna aspect is the bliss aspect fully manifest. He's also cognizant, but sometimes he forgets who he is. In the embrace of Radha, by the force of love, the bhakti becomes so powerful. That is the meaning of Krishna. When bhakti reaches such a pitch, the absolute Brahman dances like a puppet in the devotee's hands. Krishna is depicted as having a mother, and she's chasing him, saying, sit down, you have to eat. We will go to offer the food to God. She's saying, sit down, eat. This means the implication is that her bhakti, this is as such that Brahman, the Absolute, is responding just like a child would respond to his mother's chastisement, because he feels such affection in that, or as a friend loves a friend. So in the Leela we find depictions of Krishna with his friends, and they tell him, who cares for you? You're just my friend. We're equals. And they wrestle, and they herd cows together, and... All these, what are all these descriptions? What do they mean? Is What they are really saying? Or Radha's love, the gopi, the milkmaiden's love. Krishna is like, goes to his friend Subhal and says, What to do? Does Radha love me or not? Then he'll counsel them, Yes, I think so. He'll whisper, Radhe, Radhe, into his ear. He'll get some confidence. Subhal will go and speak to Radha, and arrange for a meeting between the two. Radha has a competitor in the Leela, Chandravali. Her name is... One day Krishna said to his friend Subhal, Oh, they were in the forest herding cows and they'd gone, the two of them, the other boys were with Ram. They were in a grove and Krishna said, I have to have the association of Radha. She's she's driving me mad. Subhal says, broad daylight, how are you going to do that? Because in the context of the Leela, they're unwedded and that's not appropriate and so forth. So it's all a secret affair. After all, the love life of the Absolute is probably a secret affair. right? <laughs> Ours is. So Subhal said, well, I'll try. I'll do something. You're we so pressed for her company at the moment. So he went into the village. So Subhal, he looks just like Radha. He said when Radha wants to taste friendly love with Krishna, she manifests as Subhal. So he looks like Radha. So he goes into the village to Radha's house. He sneaks in and he says give me your dress and you take my clothes and I will stay here and you go and meet Krishna. Now take this little calf and hold this newborn calf in your arms so that, so that your breasts won't show <laughs> and you won't be detected. And so out of the house she goes with the calf and her mother says her mother in law. She's in the Leela she's married to somebody else. It's just a sham, really. It's all for just the sake of the of the Leela and accentuating Radha's commitment to him and and his commitment to her and so forth. So mother in law says, Where are you going, Radha? She just holds the calf up <laughs> and, or, uh, like oh it's Subal, she says. She asks, what are you doing here, Subal? He holds the calf. Calf got lost, you know, he doesn't <laughs> indicate the calf's lost. Well, I had to bring it back. All right, get out of here. You're a friend of Krishna, aren't you? You don't belong at this house. Krishna's always trying to get Radha's attention. And she's married to my son and so forth. So these are all interesting stories. They have deep meaning and a lot of feeling and sentiment that comes out for different types of devotees who love Krishna in different ways and so forth. And all of these different players and all the different movements of nature and so forth, they're all described in the text as... Different types of ecstasy. Like the cloud comes and it rains, it means the cloud is crying in ecstasy at the opportunity to shade Krishna for a moment, something like that. So all the movements, all the gestures, all different for Anubhav, Satvikabhav, Sanchari Bhav, stāyī Vibhav, different types of bhavas. It's a bhavadeha. They have bhavadeha, means deha means body. A body of ecstasy. Why not ecstasy had, cannot have a shape? How will it express itself if it doesn't? Krishna is clearly described in gopal Tapani Upanishad and uh, other texts like Brahma Samhita. sat Ananda. vigraha. Vigraha means form, the form of sat ananda You think of sat ananda and you don't think of a form, you think sat, okay, existence. Like a big, what, empty space or something. Infinity, just like bigger and bigger. And, okay. Chit means cognizance, knowing. So knowing, full knowing, it's like this big space. I know everything, I know the whole space and everything that's in it and beyond. that's And Ananda, bliss, you get this kind of, just from the words itself, you get this kind of vague idea of like, yeah, Bliss. It's just like a, you know, yeah, it's a feeling, but, but space, kind of beyond space that these words kind of conjure up, kind of like unlimited ecstasy, joy, unlimited knowing, you know, full knowing, existence that is never threatened, no fear. It's kind of like a ah, big space from the confines, if you will, of our present limitations, in terms of tasting happiness how happy are we and, and how happy do we want to be and how much do we know and how much do we fear that we might not exist even the next moment and move even unconsciously accordingly out of that fear that our present confinement if you will imposes upon us but Think of it like this for a moment. Space is not the most accommodating thing, is it? If you're confined, it might be pretty good to have more space. But what if you were in a jail and fell in love? You might not want to leave. Although there's less space, there's more room. Love, affection is more accommodating than space. So we think of God in a kind of impersonal way, kind of like infinite consciousness, space, and that doesn't afford us uh, that much of a sense of affection. But the more that takes shape, Krishna is the shape of affection, is the idea. Krishna is the, in other words, you know, here we are in a world of forms and names, and I'm saying, these are all temporary. We have to get beyond that, and so forth, and dismantling all these forms and for what they really are, and, and so on, and thoughts, and so. And then we start talking about this Krishna Lila and There's people there, and they have forms and thoughts and and even arguments. Where are you going, Subal? What are you doing here? Well, I have to take the cash back. Mm-hmm. Just gestures. He doesn't say anything because Radha's voice. It's Radha, right? dressed in Subal's clothes, carrying a little calf. So what is all of this that Swami's talking about, this realm? I say this is all what this is about, this is Brahman in his most affectionate expression. And it needs to have shape for that, the absolute. To express itself. So so many dehas, bodies of but they their Bhava deha. This isn't a body of Bhava, of ecstasy, our bodies. So in that kind of body, Krishna's moving in leela So Subal anyway, take us back to the story. He runs to Krishna and says, what does he say? Radha comes dressed like Subal with the calf, and Subal has accomplished the task that Krishna wanted, right? Krishna wanted that Radha would be sent. he could meet with her. So it's Radha, but she's dressed as Subal. So Krishna says, "Oh, Subal, What happened?" Hmm? you couldn't bring her so Radha says no, but I could bring Chandravali who was the competitor and then Krishna says oh, no comparison I can't be satisfied with that then Radha says, you see, it's me (laughs) so these are sweet expressions of bhava and ecstasy and love that corresponds with kind of what we know to be love in this world. We love our lover, we love our friends, we love our parents, the parents love us, and so forth. So all of these kind of exchanges of love that are intimate rather than reverential, which is kind of how we think of love of God in a different way. Oh, it's different. There's Eros and there's Agape, and there's some truth to that. But this is going like beyond Agape, I'm loving God, Krishna, as I said, is the form of primarily ecstasy. Yes, he's chitta and ananda, or chitta and Sat also, but the ananda is prominent. Therefore, the Chit, the cognizance of his own godhood is forgotten in the face of the ecstasy and the measure that Radha's love personifies and speaks to us about as to how high bhakti can go. In other words, Bhakti can go, and kirtan being the principal method or expression of bhakti, so high that it can cause Krishna, who's God, to forget that he's God. That's a pretty interesting concept. The power, in other words, of... This is the teaching in bhakti. The power of bhakti is such that God is conquered by that. And that, again, is what Krishna means. In other words, <laughs> he become a plaything. In the hand of Radha, this turns the whole religious world upside down. Yogis are getting up from their trance and going, What? I was meditating on him, I thought he was God. And here he's forgotten that he's God. So all the religions teach that God is the most worshipable object, and we are teaching about the worshipable object of God. When we say Jairadhe, it's a very interesting theological idea. And Radha personifies then the full face of bhakti, Bhakti Devi, the Devi, the goddess of Bhakti, itself. And Chaitanya, when he taught about the name, he taught about how to chant it in such a way that you could reach the heights of that kind of devotion that would topple God, so to speak, off of his throne. And in the context of doing that, then you can understand why through this kirtan, he becomes so accessible because he's fallen off of his throne. <laughs> he's now on he's down, you know. You got him. You have chanted in such a way as to pierce the kind of Achilles heel of the absolute, and he becomes uh, so accessible to you that there's an overflow that goes through the people and they get a sung scar, a tendency for this kind of a thing. And they don't even know they don't understand that. Because it's so high is why it's so highly accessible and easy to practice. Because it's a type, this kirtan of kirtan, <laughs> it's a little complex, I know, is such a practice that, as taught by Chaitanya, that it can make God forget his God, become conquered by the love, and when he's conquered like that, then he's off balance, so to speak. And Chaitanya became off balance, in this he entered in the mood of Radha and he became off balance and so then what he did it just went everywhere Very and it was made very accessible so we we're coming anyway in the wake of this idea of Kirtan it has the idea that sound has power is not a sectarian idea as we've talked about it's even held to be true in secular circles the idea that the name of God has inherent power is something that universally accepted amongst those who accept God. And God has many names that describe different things about God. There are names that describe the feminine aspect of God or the masculine aspect, the creation aspect, you know, this aspect of that. Krishna describes the love aspect to the extreme, where love dominates. It's like, you know, Krishna's the ocean we're the drop, and bhakti is the channel that connects the two and is venerated by both by us for making that connection because uh, it was also said the one became many well why not for ecstasy we are the many Vishnu is the one and there's no reason for the many for the creation there's no reason to it because love you know doesn't have any reasoning to it out of his own fullness Vishnu becomes many but we become Kind of disconnected from our source. This hmm. bhakti is a means of re- making that connection again. So kirtan, a very efficacious uh, practice, and you're quite good at that. So, a few words on the subject. Any question? Um, you've been talking a little bit this weekend about the idea of surrender, and you spoke about it earlier um, in this talk. And there's a couple different terms that arise: uh, atma nivedanam. Um, a self-surrender, and then saranagati is often translated as surrender as well. And I'm wondering what the difference between these two terms are, if there is a difference. It's pretty subtle. Sometimes when you take that saranagati and you divide it up, and then you atmaniveda and be part of that, it kind of means like self-resignation, like signing oneself <coughs> over. The example is is Bali Maharaj in the sacred text. You may know about that. Bali Maharaj was uh, avatar of Krishna Vamana. He he came as a dwarf. And Bali was not the most spiritual guy. And the dwarf came before him as a Brahmin and asked something in charity because the Brahmins would live by charity. Bali said he had conquered the whole world at the time. So, he said, yeah, whatever you want. And he said, I only want three steps of land. He said, three steps of land, that's all you want. So he said, take it, no problem. See, I'm religious. I also, you know, I give to the Brahmins a little something. So, the, but then Raman, he was just a dwarf. So he had small steps, right, it would appear. But anyway, he took one step and a whole of the... Lower planetary system that they described was covered, and with the second step, the whole upper planetary system. And he said, Now you said you'd give me three steps, there's nowhere else to stand. So, are you going to go against your word? And he said, He could figure it out, he was pretty astute. He said, Here you go, you <laughs> just <Let me stand. laughs> step on my head. In the modern world we think we'll get ahead by stepping on others' heads and in bhakti we think we'll get ahead by having our head Mm -hmm. stepped on by the right people. Mm -hmm. That's why you're really putting the head down. So, something like that. What else? Kirtan is very nice. There's a nice poem by Jayadev. that goes something like this. He said, From the sadhu's heart... Harinam came, rose and danced on his lips and from there it came to my ear and bowed down and went into my heart and humbling me for tears that fell on the ground, it moistened the clay so that others could follow the way. So we should practice kirtan at the bhakti shop until we have to hire someone to mop up the tears afterwards and <laughs> you know... We are successful. What else? It's always nice to come here and, and chat with you in a very good audience. I look forward to coming again in October, right? Somet- in the fall. You got a question? Joanne? Yes. What did you mean yesterday when you said something like, bhakti, your devotion is a detachment to things but also an attachment to things. I meant that in bhakti, we learn to attach ourselves to things that are worthy of being attached to, things that won't disappear before us, right? Spiritual things. We might also attach ourselves to things that can be used spiritually. I'm attached to my beads that I chant on. I'm attached to my guru. So, to become attached to a saintly person that will have the effect of causing detachment from that which isn't saintly. So rather than trying to develop detachment in and of itself as a practice, and people do that, you know, you can find yogis in India that sit in the sun at noon in the summer next to a fire for, you know, tapa, austerity, to become detached from the idea of Heat and cold, and it's a pretty tough path. So, bhakti is very friendly because if you can just become attached to a sadhu, and you can become detached from all other things very naturally and easily. So, it's kind of a we're attached to Krishna, which is sadhus in bhakti tradition are always talking about. That's why we like them, because Krishna is likable. <laughs> the way we progress then in bhakti is by sangha, which naturally, as a byproduct of itself, brings about detachment and a very healthy detachment because it brings about a detachment not from things per se, but the sense that things belong to us, which enables us to function still in the world in relation to things with a different consciousness, understanding them in relation to their proprietor, so to speak, so that we can really use the whole world in the context of bhakti. It's not about just detachment leaving the world. It's not a world denying. It's stepping back with enough detachment through the context of bhakti to see the world for what it is and then enter back into it in a meaningful way rather than as a thief taking and exploiting and being implicated in karma as a giver. And so many things we may employ in the context of then giving bhakti to others. I mean, it's just sharing of the whole thing. I mean, that's what we do. We more we have it, the more we share it. We become good sangha. We become good association. Does that help? What's your age? Twenty-eight. No. you ever think about becoming a monastic? Sometimes. It's a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Right. Thank you all very much for coming. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Hare Krishna.